We're talking the moral ambiguities of driverless cars. My favorite? If you tell it to take you to a great restaurant, will it take you to Chipotle or Qdoba? On this Consumer Goods edition of Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. Sean O'Reilly here at Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. It is Tuesday, February 23rd, 2016, and joining me in studio is my partner in podcast crime, Mr. Vincent Shen. What's up, man? Hey, how's it going, Sean? Which restaurant do you think the driverless car would take you to? Oh, that's tough. In, in college, I would have said Kidova. Right. Now, I'm a Chipotle man. Because you got to have the cheese, right? The queso, the queso, the, yeah. the differentiating factor there for sure. Um, <laughs> so Vince, we're kind of cheating today. Um, we got a lot of listener emails and comments following last week's Deadpool and Driverless Car Show, and instead of actually doing any real work to putting together some new content, we're just going <laughs> to kind of talk about all the things that people wrote in about. So, are are we bad people? Is really what I need some reassurance. I, on. You did not have to put it that way. Okay, for all of our listeners, I want to always encourage you to reach out to us if you ever have any questions about previous shows or topics that you'd like us to cover. We're always looking for ideas. And we actually have two questions yeah, these were from good. listeners I think, that I'm really happy to uh, to discuss and kind of follow up on on the previous two shows. Really, We had one around Deadpool, one around the crossover, and we did uh, the... Uh, Drive this car, tech, exactly. whatever. So, why don't you start us off, Sean? Yeah, so um, Deadpool Revisited. Um, just an update. Um, it has... <laughs> this movie made so much money. Um, dominated the box office since its February 12th release. Domestic, $235 million. Foreign, uh, foreign $255 million. Um, that's $500 million on a $58 million budget film, not including marketing, of course. But After just two-week run. This is Cuckoo Bananas Profits. Like this, <laughs> and it's not even like a major character or whatever you want to say. Um, took the spot top spot again this past weekend, as predicted. The the competition wasn't quite there. It was The Risen and The Witch, which... Kung Fu Panda was number two in terms of actual dollar amounts. But oh, that's good, yeah. The new releases like Risen and The Witch, they... Yeah. They were came in, I think, like third and fourth, um, but they actually did pretty well on their own. Smaller releases, as it were, as they were. But Deadpool, kind of like we call, there wasn't that much competition coming up this past weekend. Continues to dominate really well, and uh, so last week we had talked about how Deadpool logged the best opening weekend ever for 20th Century Fox. Now that has extended. Uh, this unlikely superhero really has become he's the an best anti-hero, Vince. Exactly, yeah. has become the best performing. X-Men movie uh, for the studio ever, at least in terms of the U.S. box office. And that's out of eight films at this point. And they have a ninth one coming out with X-Men Apocalypse. Right. So, uh, the real the reason we're bringing this up again, and the uh, you know what the, the, the question pertains to is, after discussing its impact on 21st Century Fox last week, uh, there was a question we received uh, from Brian W., and it basically amounts to, since this is a Marvel character, and Disney owns Marvel, does Disney see any of the profits from this movie? What's the deal there? And it's actually, this situation exists also with the X-Men franchise, yes. as I recall. So... Uh, what does this mean for the shareholders of both these companies? Like, how how does that shake sure. out? Sure. So, you know, we talked a little bit more about 21st Century Fox's um, 20th Century Fox's studio. You know, obviously part of 21st Century Fox. I know it can get a little confusing sometimes. Oh, did they change the name? Oh, wow. Um, but uh, Brian, if you're listening, thanks again for the question. Um, I'm I kind of 
wish we had just covered this last week as well. But it's good because I needed to get some of the research done. Um, and I actually had a follow-up to the response I sent him, actually. So I think a lot of moviegoers were surprised and maybe a little bit probably relieved, too, to find out you know the company that's known for it. You think about Disney, maybe Frozen, WALL-E, Disney Princesses. And then you get this like hard, very heavy rated R flick. Uh, doesn't really sit, uh, I guess, as well within that range of films from Disney. But... You know, obviously, put out by 20th, uh, 20th Century Fox. Uh, what is Disney's role in all this? And otherwise, uh, you know, we in doing uh, you know the research, trying to find out the background in terms of how they share profits, who gets rights to what. We um, we learned that basically, Marvel has a lot of these kinds of agreements. It can get you know pretty convoluted. So. <clears throat> You know, Marvel before was purchased by Disney in 2009 for like four billion dollars. They had their three business, you know, operating segments essentially. They had their publishing, think more traditional, Comic books, exactly, yeah. and then they had their licensing business, which is what we're going to touch on, and they had their film production. But then keep in mind that they didn't even start producing their own films until like 2006. They took out this uh, huge credit facility in order to fund those efforts. But before that, you know, they generated the revenue by basically allowing other you know major studios to license their their uh, character, you know, intellectual property essentially, and then to produce films. And uh, another example that we had looked at previously was Sony and Spider-Man. Where Sony acquired those rights, I think it was like in 1999, and they ended up producing five Spider-Man movies, and all the, those I think really paved the way for some of these bigger superhero films. They did super well at the box office. You know, two different, like basically two different reboots, right? One with Tobey Maguire, one with Andrew Garfield, and um, in that agreement. Uh, Marvel and eventually Disney after the acquisition, they actually kept the rights to things like the TV shows, merchandising, and other like platforms and outlets. But the company still benefited from a lot of the surging popularity for the character itself that accompanied each movie, naturally. Right. And the thing is, Sony and Disney signed a deal in February of last year, you know, as if things didn't get complicated enough, where they are changing their relationship a little bit because the most recent movie that Sony put out, uh, I think it was The Amazing Spider-Man 2, didn't do as well in the box office as they had hoped. They canceled a third installment in what was supposed to be that trilogy. And so now the new agreement, interestingly enough, has Sony agreeing, uh, Sony basically saying, okay, Disney, you can use Spider-Man in your upcoming movies, like... Uh, tie-ins with like the Avengers, mm-hmm. we'll still also be able to portray the character in our own standalone films, but that way we would both benefit from the tied-in marketing and just, uh, I guess, reboot again right. of this character in another trilogy. That sounds really convoluted. Yes. <laughs> and, it sounds um, really messy, but okay. You know, in that agreement, they both actually retain their. They basically get to keep the profits from each film. They, uh, I don't really think they share in that. Um, it's just more of like a mutually beneficial situation. Now, the difference here, rolling back to Deadpool, is that 20th Century Fox, uh, just to give some background, acquired X Men rights way back in 1993, and I thought that Disney actually had a similar arrangement with Spider Man, but, mm-hmm. but um, after following up on doing some more reading and. Uh, getting some uh, input actually from one of our fool.com writers, T- Tim Byers, he was able to find this uh, court legal filing essentially that shed some more light on the actual relationship between Fox and Marvel and what this means for the movies. So, 
Um, you're going to laugh at this number, I know you will. Fox acquired the X-Men live action and animated rights from Marvel for $2.6 million. So, and... Hold on. <laughs> they got the rights to these two... Keep in mind, this is way back in 1993, before all the... That doesn't make it right. Before the potential. That doesn't make it right. Showed itself, I think. But I, there was the X-Men they also alone, get, the X-Men they also cartoon get, alone from the 90s. They it's, also get... Before I finish, let me finish. Is they also get a percentage of the gross box office receipts, but those generally seem oh. to be small based on what you can't even get a house in DC. <laughs> I mean, granted, DC is really stinking expensive compared to the rest of the country, but you see what I'm saying. Yes, of you're course. talking about a house north of Dupont Circle mm-hmm. for the rights. To... Again, all right. This whatever. is over 20 years ago. All right, all okay. deal. Let's keep that in mind. Um, so. You know, it purchased those rights for two point six million dollars, and in terms of what the that percentage of the gross box office receipts actually came out to be, uh, you know, in that legal filing from two thousand one, actually, the original X Men film generated about one hundred and sixty million dollars in profits for Fox. Mm-hmm. You know, not bad at all. While Marvel earned just uh, about six million dollars in back end contingent compensation, so that's about two percent of worldwide ticket sales. So right. we're thinking maybe that two percent is what the what the fees actually, you know, were agreed to. So, assuming it hasn't changed, it could have, but you know, we don't have the details. But assuming it hasn't changed since that time, you know, based on that f- almost five hundred million dollars that Deadpool has generated in total worldwide ticket mm-hmm. sales, Disney would only get, be getting about ten million dollars from that. So, a pretty small nominal amount. Right. Um, and the thing is, you know, supporting the idea that Marvel maybe undersold a lot of its characters like the licensing rights earlier on before they realized like how these huge blockbuster franchises can go uh, you know Disney since acquiring Marvel has been pretty active in reacquiring rights uh, including I think like Black Panther was part of that um, and also uh, Scarlett Johansson's character um, Black Widow yes exactly and so I think they have Reevaluated some of those agreements, seeing the value that they're losing right. out on, and now they're kind of trying to fix that. But you know, for Brian and for other listeners, just to give you that background, you know, Disney has agreements with has different agreements with these studios, and in some cases, they are much better than others. Right. Okay. Cool. So, uh, how big a deal do you think this is before we move on for the shareholders of each company? Because we saw that 20th century. Fox, their share price is up three percent after Deadpool. You know the, the box office results and everything. Yeah, you know, we we talked about how uh, you know their studio segment is essentially their second largest one. Um, it's important, and the thing is, a huge success like this film or you know Star Wars: The Force Awakens, we've seen the impact that can have on right. quarterly results for sure, and the long tail that it's likely to have with a franchise, but it's still one film in the business that we talked about. You know, Hollywood can be really choppy. Who knows? Hopefully, the second Deadpool is awesome. I, right. I really like the first one, but there's no guarantee of that. Right. And so, uh, for, it's bigger impact for Fox, certainly. For Disney, I'm sure they get that lift in general from having another Marvel character become a huge blockbuster success, but obviously, it's not going to be uh, as nice a lift for them. So. Got it. Cool. 
Before we move on, I wanted to point our listeners to the newly redesigned Focus.Fool.com. There you'll discover a special offer to join the Motley Fool's Stock Advisor newsletter to start off your year foolishly. All Loyal AF listeners have access to a special discount on Stock Advisor that works out to $129 for a full two-year subscription. Just go to Focus.Fool.com to take advantage of this offer. Once again, that is Focus.Fool.com. All right, so moving on. we briefly touched on in a previous show autonomous cars and driverless cars and what's going on there, um, but it's it's such a it's a topic that has such breadth that we couldn't really talk about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got a listener question that actually brought up we briefly I think mentioned in the show before, but you know we talked about the moral ambiguities of an autonomous car and mm-hmm. how it picks who lives and who dies in an extreme example. Sure. Um, so Sam M wrote in. Uh, after listening to our crossover show between Tech and CG, and he wanted to know, let's see here, if there is a situation in which a collision is imminent, who does the software computer try to save? The passengers or the pedestrians? Does the car try to save the maximum number of lives? The human driver would naturally have his own self-interest as a priority, but would a computer driving one passenger purposely endanger its one passenger in order to save four pedestrians? I wonder how the tech companies would address this. What do you think? Um, And that's just one example. I mean, we watch tons of videos and TED Talks and stuff, and it's like, this is, it's kind of crazy to think about. I have to say that for this segment, um, and you know, having touched on this in the crossover, I gotta say for Sam and all of our other listeners, we are probably gonna have more questions for you than any answers at all. Right. Um, there are a lot of bright minds, and in terms of on the technological side and on the regular regulatory side, are thinking about this and the impact it's likely to have in the next five, ten years as this beco- technology becomes more mainstream. Actually, starts putting you know where the rubber starts meeting the road, right? Right. Um, so we talked last time about how the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, you know, they released a letter in response to some petitioning from Google, basically acknowledging that hey, if the car doesn't have any of the typical driver instruments like a steering wheel, brake pedal, um, the software itself could be considered the driver. So, you know, that leads to all these other questions, kind of like you mentioned. Right. How does the software determine what the right action is? Whereas. Uh, if it's some, if it's a person who's driving the car, naturally they're going to react during and that's make that split second decision, and you might not, f- you know, it's harder to fault them for that, right? It's it really right. is ultimately just a panicked decision, but that software, assuming it can process millions or billions of inputs, then it's a in that, reasoned decision. In that split second, yeah. you know, who is writing? You know, who are these programmers that are writing it? What are they told? How are they told to program the software? Who decides that? And so, a lot of these questions come into play that I I wanted to touch on the show today in our discussion. And so, a lot of people talk about: Do we prioritize minimizing harm, or do we prioritize the passenger? And the thing is, even behind each of those questions, there are so many nuances. It's 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 really interesting to think about, and also just difficult to try and wrap your mind around. So, ultimately, I think public opinion will play a big role in this. It's not even that simple. So, uh, MIT Technology Review. Uh, first thing I wanted to bring up. So this, they uh, mentioned an experimental survey that was conducted in France with you know several hundred participants, 
And the result leaned towards the the people's preference would be to minimize harm in the software, to minimize harm or death toll from accidents, because ultimately that's what people say mm-hmm. is so great about this technology potentially can reduce a lot of traffic fatalities. The thing is, that sounds uh, that, that makes a lot of sense, and I agree with it. But then the question is, they also followed up, is that someone sitting in a traditional car might feel really comfortable if they're surrounded by autonomous cars that minimize harm. Mm-hmm. But what happens if you're sitting in one of these autonomous cars and you know for a fact that the, if the situation arose, the software would sacrifice you in order to save, you know? So I might not get in the car. Passengers. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, we have this challenge now of not only figuring out this kind of like moral dilemma, but you uh-huh. also have the challenge of of making it, you know, I guess appetizing enough that the consumer market will actually adopt the technology because ultimately people got to buy these cards to put them on the road. Right. And, um, you know, even minimizing harm is unclear because you might, you might say, uh, there's a lot of uh, scenarios uh posed in the research we did and you know one for example is you might saving six people versus three people might is still not an easy question but it seems like you would go towards again minimizing loss of life but what happens if those six people are all octogenarians and the three people is a mother and two very young children how does software make that kind of distinction and it's almost it's almost like unfair in a way to ask Anybody to have to program the software to think in that way. So it's just a very challenging question indeed. And uh, like I said, we can't give you the answers, but we can touch on the fact that I think going forward, cybersecurity, privacy, safety, tons of testing and trial and error are going to be things that we hear about constantly. Well, it definitely seems like public opinion is going to play a big role in what happened while i agree you know the survey kind of shows i think everybody's going to say yeah it makes perfect sense you want to try and minimize harm or minimize loss of life but when it comes down to it you know but person individually when they have to make that what if somebody's decision, 90 and has cancer versus uh, it's just newborn not, baby it's not that black and white obviously and you know, before people think they're going to be able to kick up their feet, enjoy that overnight drive to their in-laws house right, right? two states away i think uh, we'll have to figure out questions around the safety. We'll have to figure out questions around cybersecurity. What happens if somebody can, you know, change the software that comes with the car and alter it in a way that's not that's you know benefits them more or it's just not right. is, is dangerous? Um, privacy in terms of all of the you know the software knows exactly where you're going. It's tracking us all the time. What if there are updates to go to the software provider and they basically know everywhere you're going? How does mm-hmm. that impact things? It almost seems to me like when I was trying to compare all this in my mind, what happened? Is it anybody's fault? Let's take a train. Train going seventy miles an hour, going sure. across country, whatever. If a kid chases a ball in front of the train and the unfortunate thing happens, is that anybody's fault? I kind of I'm I think that it's gonna kind of get like that at some point mm-hmm. because the car is going straight. If it doesn't have time to, st- I, I don't know. It's trickier with like the octogenarian, you know, newborn baby thing. But like, <laughs> it almost seems to me like an autonomous car is like a train or a roller coaster, just something to where, yeah, I mean, things happen. Like, <laughs> and something know. else I want to also want to bring Sam, if you're listening, I want to bring up that that. Uh, Basically, comes up when we talk about this is the fact that you know you have 
it's not it's not uncommon at all for technology to outpace basically what where the the legal situation is mm-hmm. where uh, you know the laws have to catch up to cover things like cybersecurity for right. example right but now you have this instance where it's like we have these like top minds at companies like Google at all the automakers think Nvidia for example with some of its uh, smart car technology yeah where they're writing all this code or developing all this software working on this you know innovating in this space and you're expecting you know the regulators to be able to decipher such technical information and to basically put put rules up around that and it's going to be very challenging for them to just have to work together and basically explain okay so this is how each piece works to these regulators who frankly probably aren't programmers right right and to have to figure that out and there's definitely a knowledge barrier there exactly or, yeah so you know maybe there is something you know this is an idea that you and I were talking about before right. the show where you know you have HOV lanes right now on major highways like you know even I sixty six right in the capital yeah where that can serve as like a testing ground it seems to me like because with the octogenarian kid example just all this <laughs> stuff. Um, it does seem to me that we're making a mistake when we assume that let's just pretend everybody gets a driverless car, um, our roads are going to be structured the same. That's kind of unlikely to me. Mm-hmm. And I also think that in most cities where there's congestion or whatever, it does seem to me like, you know, I noticed that the video we watched, the TED Talk. Yes. Um, we should probably link that out or something. If you want it, we'll email it to you. Um, it's I noticed that the examples were all on a fast-moving freeway. Yes. If there's a driverless car going down Duke Street outside full headquarters here, speed limit's 25 or 30, I who knows, driverless car might actually even go slower than that, just by law or whatever. Sensors can probably stop the car if a kid runs out in front of it. Like It seems to me like we're making a mistake that just assume the roadways and the the, the the laws that operate on the roadways are going to be the same. And the, another thing is, ultimately, you know, people say that this technology will be beneficial, more safe because it takes that right. that human error element, whether it's an accident or you know people aren't paying attention. To no the more road drunk driving, driving deaths. I mean, all kinds so of stuff. So yeah. ultimately, you know, while we have all these questions, and it might seem like, oh wow, things aren't that clear. I don't want. I I do want to make it clear. Um, that ultimately I think this technology does have a lot of benefits in terms of the environment, just saving people's time, making them more productive, and just making the roads safer. I don't know where I got this, and I might be making it up, but I saw this statistic, and it was like a city the size of... the DC metro area, which has, I don't know, a couple million people, three million people? No, or I think it's a little under a million. A little under a million. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm sorry. Anyway, I saw the statistic, and I think the city they use is Washington, D.C., and we could basically have like a fleet of like 7,000 driverless cars just like circling the city, kind of acting as taxis or whatever. And that and would be enough. That would statistically sustain. get you a ride pretty quick. Wow. And that's like, I don't know, that's pretty sweet. Cool. So, so yeah, I, I, like I said, I'm sorry we don't have all the answers here, but it's this will definitely be an interesting. Uh, space to watch, and we're actually really excited to have the opportunity to you know give you updates as they start figuring out uh, some of the answers to these very difficult questions. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, joining us on the show, Vince. Thanks, Sean. Uh, always a pleasure. And if you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Again, that's industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people in this program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. For Vincent Shen, I'm Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!